I bet you thought it was kind of strange that that ended on a negative, right? Don't we all want to... We were just talking about this in Sunday school as well. We all want it to go like this, but then like this. That's how we want the church service to go. That's how we want the sermon to go. That's how we want scripture to go, right? And many times it doesn't follow that pattern. And we have to wait. And that's going to be a theme of... of the scripture today, and I encourage you to open your scriptures to Matthew chapter 20. We're going to be looking at the first 16 verses, a parable of the vineyard workers this morning. And uh, keep it open on your lap. I'll be referring to it throughout the sermon. If you're a note taker or an underliner, I encourage that. But certainly if, if that is not something you're used to doing in your Bible, that's fine. If you're using a pew Bible, probably not a good idea. But How many of you out there, we'll do a show of hands, why not? We'll go out on a limb. How many of you out there have a subscription to Netflix? Wow, okay, maybe half, maybe a little less than half. That's interesting. Well, Netflix has always been kind of on the leading edge of of this streaming technology. That's what made them the, the billion-dollar company that they are. They burst onto the scene and, and practically uh, put, and there's an interesting documentary about this, uh, put Blockbuster out of business through DVD rentals through the mail. As a matter of fact, if you go down to the Southwest uh, Post Office, you'll see that the inbox there still has above it uh, Netflix returns. <laughs> it says right there. They were also one of the first to go to digital rentals and streaming. And they were on the leading edge of producing their own movies and series. And one of the most block, biggest ones that, that really put them on the map where this is concerned is that, uh, that series Stranger Things. I don't know if you've ever watched it. Uh, very interesting. It keeps going on. They keep adding years to it. And that series followed a group of preteen boys in a small town in the 1980s as they try and free their friend from a place called the Upside Down. Their, their friend had got, got drawn into and captured into this other dimension that they named the Upside Down. The Upside Down in Stranger Things is an alternative dimension that exists parallel to their own dimension, the human world. But it is totally unseen. I remember when I was watching this series, I was thinking about the parallels that that is to the kingdom of God. That is its own dimension, real dimension. But it's unseen. It it exists parallel with, in, in conjunction with what we see here. And yet we don't see it. It's the upside down. That's what Christ, when he came in the the beginning of Mark and in the beginning of, of Matthew, when he comes and he declares that by his coming, the kingdom of God has arrived. This parallel dimension, so to speak, per se, has arrived. And with that declaration, he, he is saying that it is here, he's ushered it in, and it's existing side by side. But it has a totally different set of rules. The things that are normal to us here are abnormal there and vice versa. And, and a lot of what Jesus is teaching is, is he's taking 
what the kingdom of God and how it runs, its set of rules. And he's teaching, though, that in this dimension, so to speak, and when we hear these new set of rules, this, 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 this kingdom of God and how it operates, it sounds odd to us. It sounds strange to us. As a matter of fact, we don't agree with a lot of the principles that this kingdom of God, that he's ushering in, that is progressing, that is being established even now, we don't agree with those principles. They, it chafes against what we think is right. And in our text today, he's going to stress one of these principles. And that is the principle of the last shall be first and the first last. So look with me. I want us to start a little at the end of chapter 19. So if you'll glance up to verse 27 there. God's word says, Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything to follow you. He's talking to Jesus. What will we then have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, in the new kingdom, in the upside down, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left house or brother or sister or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, You, go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again in the sixth hour, and in the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why are you standing idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one has hired us. And he said to them, You, go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wage, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only an hour, and you have paid them equal to us, we who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. 
So beginning again with the context through the encounters with the children and the rich man that we looked at last week through this parable and indeed even bleeding on into the next story about the the mother of James and John and 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 them their their request to come and sit in seats of honor the holy spirit spirit wants us to understand a basic basic principle of this new kingdom that is existing side by side that will someday become this kingdom and that is The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. We've already seen this played out before our very eyes last week with the children that the disciples assumed that Jesus would reject, he accepts. And the rich man, whom whom his disciples presume that Jesus will accept, he rejects. We've already seen this kind of visually played out in front of us. So here he teaches on it, again, about a parable of this vineyard owner, a man who owns a vineyard, and he needs the the grapes plucked. And so he goes at the first hour, which is six in the morning, and he he hires and agrees to hire laborers for a day's wage, which is a denarius. That was a day's wage 2,000 years ago. And they agree to go into the vineyard and work 12 hours for a denarius. And then about the third hour, which is nine o'clock, he sees he goes into the market and sees that there's some men are just standing there and he and he hires them and says go and work and I'll pay you what's fair and they go and work and he does this again at the at the uh, sixth hour and at the ninth hour and even at the eleventh hour five o'clock he goes and there are still people standing there so he says go and work and I'll pay you what's fair and they go and work. And then he asked the foreman to bring the people in last to first. Those who had been hired last. Those who, had, who started at the 11th hour. And if you saw, he gives them a day's wage. And he gives a day's wage to those started at, at 3 o'clock, at 12 o'clock, at 9 o'clock. And all the while, these people that started at 6 in the morning are thinking, this is good news for me. I see that and I go, I'm going to be owed more. This is excellent. And when they get in there, he gives them the same wage. And they they begin to complain to him. If you look at verse 11, they say, these last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching of heat. They're complaining that since they were first on the job, they're not getting their fair share. This is not fair. This is not just. And so Jesus asks three questions that get at their hearts. He asks three questions that actually get at our hearts too. Each one is designed to uncover an aspect of this upside-down kingdom. And the first question is, did you not agree with me for denarius? And what God is getting at here is God's justice is different. It's upside down from the way we see justice. His justice is different. On February 11th, 2004, the Helsinki police stopped a 27-year-old UC Soljana for driving 80 in a 40 kilometer 
per hour zone. Twice the speed limit. Soliana, being a millionaire, was fined 170,000 euros, equivalent to about $200,000 speeding ticket. That's because the Finnish lawmakers scale traffic fines according to the income of the violator. That just doesn't seem fair to us, does it? My goodness, $200,000 for a speeding ticket. That doesn't seem right. How can they do that? That gives you kind of a window into how the, the people, the men who started working at six in the morning were feeling. How can you do that? This is not fair. This is not just. They'd been there since morning. Others got hired later. And yet they get the same wage as me. The first workers thought they deserved more than the later workers. That's how it works in this world, isn't it? That makes sense to us. You work longer, you work harder, you get paid more. You work less, you don't work as hard, you get paid less. But look at what Jesus says in verse 13 to them. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Hold it. He says, hold it. Didn't you agree at six in the morning when I, when I found you in the marketplace? Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Isn't that what we agreed upon? Through this question, Jesus is showing that it has nothing to do with the wage, but the heart of the workers. He's getting at the heart of the workers. You see, our hearts have a different view of what's fair. Our hearts have a different view of what's just. But in his kingdom, the first shall be last and the last first. That's a foundational cornerstone principle. God's sense of justice is different than ours. God's sense of justice is going to seem upside down from ours. Isn't that how when we look at at the cross, isn't that exactly how we feel? At least we should feel. Isn't that what's so striking about the cross to us? God judges his son for our sin? Doesn't that seem strange? I mean, when you share the gospel with somebody, that's what seems so strange to them, isn't it? How can somebody take my sin? That doesn't seem... And, and, and by the way, Jesus, who was first, is becoming a last there, right? He who is, who is perfect, here's the upside-downness of the cross, he who is perfect is sinful, takes on our sin. He who is innocent is declared guilty. You see, you're seeing this principle played out right there on the cross. He who is omnipotent, all-powerful, as a matter of fact, that's exactly what he says to Pontius Pilate, I could call down legions hangs perfectly weak, naked on the cross. He who is the source of life actually dies for our sin. And through the resurrection, the last becomes the first fruits of our salvation. This principle is played out perfectly in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why it seems so strange. That's why it's so hard to hang on to. You know, in discipleship, we talk a lot about 
preaching the gospel to ourselves. And, and so much of the gospel that we preach to ourselves is so hard to remember, to hang on to. We talk about it as, as water in our palm that slowly leaks out and we go, oh, it's not there anymore. That Jesus, that God is totally pleased with you and never has, never, is always smiling, never frowning towards you. That's upside down. That doesn't make sense. I sin. No, 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 no. He's perfectly pleased with you. Always. Always. But that doesn't make sense. No, 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 no. Always. The gospel is upside down. But this gospel, this upside downness sense of justice is felt all over in our lives, isn't it? It is acutely felt in our desire for justice now. We want justice now, don't we? We want justice today, but God's justice is eventual. We look around in our culture and say, why isn't God? We look around like Habakkuk and say, why isn't God? Now. But what's so upside down is it's not now. Sometimes incomplete now, but not complete now. It's going to be complete eventually. Old Testament Israelite prophets complain to God all the time. What we read up there in Habakkuk. Why isn't God judging the wicked Babylonians now? Where's the justice now? That's the, the perennial, one of the perennial complaints of, in the Old Testament is what? Why are the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering? You see it all over in the major and minor prophets. Why? They cry out because they want justice now. I even think in, in the book of Revelation in chapter 6, you see a picture of the throne. And underneath the throne, if you remember, are those who have died for the witness, the martyrs. And what are they crying out? They're saying this, How long, O Lord, before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? We want justice now. And we still want instantaneous justice. Justice on our timetable. And it doesn't seem right to our hearts that God isn't bringing justice now. Because we live in a world where the wicked do prosper. The cheaters do succeed. The scrupulous are successful. The first come in first. Yet there will come a time when that will be reversed. God's justice is eventual. The sheep and the goats will be separated, brothers and sisters. There will be a wedding banquet in which those people will be shut out. Matthew 22. When the wicked and cheaters will be judged. Brothers and sisters, that's why he gave us the book of Revelation. So that to give us the patience and the understanding that justice, this is not when justice is meted out. It's meted out later. 
to give us a sure and certain hope that eventually the first will be last and the last will be first. We look forward to that great reversal, don't we? That's actually what, what keeps us putting one foot in front of the other in this, in this dark world. That is what we are hoping in and looking forward to and being patient with. The knowledge that eventual justice will be done. And we need to be satisfied. We need that knowledge to slake our thirst for justice now. Second question. Do you begrudge my generosity? He asks them, do you begrudge my generosity? Here Jesus is getting it. God's generosity in salvation is upside down. God's generosity in salvation is, seems, seems ridiculous. Jesus shows this in the parable in that the last come to work, the last to come to work are literally the first to be paid. And the first who have labored the longest must wait the longest to get their payment. And notice as well that the first who are now last receive the same as the laborers. And they complain about it. You're making them equal to us. They become bitter. They become angry. They become resentful at his generosity. This is a common reaction to the generosity of God in salvation. God is a generous God. He is graceful and merciful. And many times our hearts resent that. I think of the target of this question might have even been the Pharisees themselves. If you look at verse in chapter 19, if you look at the context of this whole section, you see that that Pharisees were among those people that were following Jesus when he was doing this teaching when he was challenging the rich man, when he was accepting the children, when he was telling this parable. We see that there are Pharisees in the crowds. And so it would make sense that part of this parable would be directed at their hearts. As other parables were, you think of the, the parable of the prodigal son. The context there is tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees. And he wanted to get at the Pharisee's heart with the elder brother standing outside, resenting the generosity of the father. Or the parable of the wedding banquet, again, in, in Matthew 22. The Pharisees are the ones who refuse to come into the banquet. And the parable, and the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The application there is obvious. The question he's getting at is that same attitude. He's getting at that same attitude of resenting God's generosity. The Pharisees throughout the Gospels are scandalized by the salvation freely given to what they designate as heinous sinners. You see that throughout the Gospels. They're always complaining to Jesus. Why them? Why are you eating with them? Why are you, why are you touching them? Why are you spending time with them? Why are you forgiving them? They were asking, how could it be that it's so simple and free when we are laboring so hard? 
How could they possibly inherit the same salvation that we are killing ourselves to inherit? You can almost hear it. We've worked and labored for years under the scorching hot sun of the law. And Mary Magdalene is allowed in. Matthew, the tax collector, is allowed in. They get the same ring. They get the same scandals. They get the same cloak. They get the same kiss on the neck. How can that be? They get the same wage as us. This attitude extends into into the church as well. In the early church, you see this attitude throughout the letters, don't you? What was the, the meta-narrative there? The Jews can't believe that the Gentiles are allowed in. These latecomers, we've been here for thousands of years and these are the 11th hour workers. And they're being let in? To which God always asks, do you begrudge my generosity? Are you angry that I'm jealous with salvation? The scandal of this question is that we are all equal recipients of God's gifts. Equal recipients. Romans 2.11, he writes, there is no partiality with God. The scandal of the gospel is that we are often covetous and jealous when God's gifts of forgiveness and life are given in equal measure. And we have to be careful with our own hearts, brothers and sisters. Those that have been Christians longer here. Those who have maybe suffered more. Those who have really tried to live by the law. They'll get the same reward as those, li- those who lived a life of sin and who come to Jesus. And it doesn't seem fair. But that's the upside-down generosity of our God. That's one of the hardest lessons to learn of salvation. And that's one of the lessons that the thief on the cross teaches us, doesn't it? Today you'll be with me in paradise. A life of, of thievery and debauchery is going to inherit the same paradise as Peter, who's sacrificed his whole life and was crucified upside down, as Paul, who was beheaded for the name? Yeah. We have to be careful not to begrudge the generosity of God. And lastly, the third question. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Again, those who were the first on the job thought they had earned more, yet the vineyard owner distributed the wages as he saw fit. What we have to remember as we read this is Jesus is not talking about vineyard grapes, but about the grace of God here. And this question reveals that God's grace feels upside down because it is sovereign grace. It is sovereign grace. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? What Jesus is saying through this question is God dispenses grace as he chooses. God dispenses grace as he chooses. We tend to think like those first workers that we deserve more spiritually. We earned it. 
put it in plain terms, that we deserve salvation. We think we deserve salvation. That is the heart of what Paul is writing against at the beginning of Romans 9. You remember when he talked about those twins, yet before they were born, the twins had nothing to do, good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob, I loved, Esau, I hate it. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. For Moses says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Brothers and sisters, God is sovereign in salvation. He withholds the punishment we so deserve. That's the biblical definition of mercy. And he gives us salvation that we don't deserve. There's the grace. And that is what Jesus is saying here. In the parable, the first workers, first group received justice. The first group, those that started at 6 a.m., received justice. They received what they were owed. But every group after that received grace. That which they didn't deserve. There's no possible way they could have earned a day's wage in less than a day. However, the owner gave them a denarius anyway. And brothers and sisters, we are always part of that later group. We're always part of those who were hired at nine or noon or three or five. That's where we reside. God never owes us salvation for something we have done. God never owes us salvation for something we have done. He always gives us salvation despite everything we've done. Do you see the difference there? He never gives us salvation because of something we've done. He always gives us salvation despite what we have done. Salvation is always despite. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, and if you haven't read Knowing God, I, I commend it to you. It's one that every Christian should read and have on their shelf. In that book, he writes this, For most people today, amazing grace has become boring grace. It is boring because we do not think of ourselves as sinners, at least not very great sinners, and because we think that God owes us something anyway. We are kind and generous and forgiving, so why wouldn't God be like that towards us, we think? The part of the gospel that we have to keep ever before our eyes is that salvation is always despite. Despite our incessant sinning. Despite our rejection and unbelief. Despite our indifference and apathy towards God. Despite our self-centeredness and our self-righteousness. God, in his magnificent grace, in Jesus Christ, has granted us salvation despite what we have done. And every person in this room has a despite. Every person in this room who has given their life to Christ has a despite. And we have to keep that before our eyes. 
in balance with what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. And that's what this table is about. We are to, as he says in 1 Corinthians, to remember and recall and, and, and think of and confess and repent of our sins. In other words, recall our despites. But then remember what Christ has done. And so as I call the elders up to help me serve this meal, I want to encourage us that this is a celebration of what Christ has done. This is not a memorial. There's actually spiritual, something spiritual going on here. That this is given to us to, to do every time we meet, as it says in the Word, so that we can be spiritually encouraged not to live in the despites, not to live in, what, oh, I'm such a terrible sinner, but to remember what Christ has done for you in, Christ, in Jesus Christ. And so on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus wanted to let his disciples know this. And so he took the bread of the Passover and he broke it. And, and they weren't expecting this. And he gave it to his disciples, just like he would in the Passover. And as he gave it to his disciples, he broke the bread. And he handed each one of them a piece. And he said, this is my body that is broken for you. Do this every time you meet to remember my sacrifice for you. He willingly let his body be literally torn apart, paying the the awful penalty for our sin. He gladly did that, absorbing our penalty, our punishment. Let's remember that and rejoice.